We are risking our existence. And if that's not a cheery way to spend your Sunday afternoon, I don't know what is. I think you'll agree, though. You turn on the news, you open a newspaper, and the consensus seems to be that things are going pretty well out there. Uh, so uh, the suggestion that there's some kind of existential risk is obviously mad and, and crazy. Luckily, a philosopher and astrophysicist and a software engineer walked into a bar. And in that bar, they formed something called the uh, Centre for the Study of Existential Risk. Our two guests on stage with us today are both from that centre, and we'll be talking about the nature of the things that should make us very afraid. But before I get to them, we're going to hear from their colleague, the aforementioned astrophysicist, Martin Rees. <clears throat> Ten years ago, I wrote a book which I entitled Our Final Century, question mark. The publishers took out the question mark. The American publishers retitled the book, Our Final Hour. I guess Americans like instant gratification, so they like the words. My theme was that our Earth had existed for 45 million centuries. But this century is special. It's the first when one species, ours, has the planet's future in its hands. Over nearly all of Earth's history, Threats have come mainly from nature. Earthquakes, diseases, asteroids, and so forth. But now, the worst come from us. Already in our interconnected world, breakdowns can cascade globally. Air travel can spread a pandemic worldwide in a few days, and social media can spread panic and rumor literally at the speed of light. We fret too much about unlikely threats like air crashes. But we and our political masters are in denial about catastrophic cyber or bio scenarios. The worst has thankfully not yet happened. Indeed, they probably won't. But if an event is catastrophic, it's worth a substantial premium to safeguard against it, even if it's unlikely, just as we take out insurance on our house. But the downsides of misuse of science are getting greater. Within a few decades, millions will have the capabilities to misuse rapidly advancing biotech, just as they can misuse cybertech today. And for instance, there are echo extremists who think that the problem with the world is billions too many human beings. What happens when such people have mastered synthetic biology techniques of the kind that will be widespread by 2050. And by then, other science fiction nightmares may transition to reality. Dumb robots going rogue, or a network that develops a mind of its own and threatens us all. Well, can we guard against such risks? The global village will have its village idiots, and they'd have global range. So I think we'll surely have a bumpy ride through this century. There may be setbacks to our society, and we have to cope with that. But are there conceivable events that could be even worse, which would snuff out all of life? These are fortunately very unlikely indeed. But they are far worse, even than the worst we can imagine that could set back our civilization. I think that especially as an astronomer, because I can't believe that we humans are the end of the story. There's five billion years ahead before the sun flares up and the universe may continue forever. So post-human evolution, here on Earth and far beyond, could be as prolonged as the Darwinian process that led to us and even more wonderful. So we surely shouldn't accept even a one in a billion risk that human extinction would foreclose this immense potential. And that's why I'm glad to be joining with Hugh Price and Jan Tallinn and others in Cambridge in setting up a centre to study how to mitigate existential risks. Some scenarios that have been envisaged may indeed be science fiction, but others may be disquietingly real. Remember that the unfamiliar is not the same as the improbable. We are stewards of a precious pale blue dot in a vast cosmos, a planet with 50 million centuries ahead of it. Let's not jeopardise that future.
an impressive, charming man whose every utterance is designed to make us terrified. How nice that is. Uh, his two colleagues join us today. We're going to hear a short presentation from each of them, and then we're going to bring it together for a bit of a conversation, where I try to get to the bottom of whether flesh-eating viruses or sentient robots are the thing that should make me more afraid uh, as I go about my business. And we're going to kick off with Hugh Price. Hugh is the aforementioned philosopher. He's Bertrand Russell, philosopher of... Uh, sorry. He's Bertrand Russell, Professor of Philosophy at Cambridge and one of the co-founders of the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk. Please make him very welcome. Thanks, Michael, um, and thank you all for coming today. Three years ago this month, I left Sydney for Cambridge to take up my new job there. I took the scenic route because I was going to various conferences in Scandinavia and Northern Europe. And one evening at one of those conferences in Copenhagen, I found myself in a taxi with a man I'd never met before. We hadn't met, but I knew who he was because we were attending the same conference, which had started three days earlier um, on a little cruise ship called the National Geographic Explorer in Norway. And at the first session, as we sailed down the fjord from Bergen, we'd all had two minutes to say who we were, where we came from, and what we did. So I knew that this person in the taxi with me was called Jan Tallinn, that he came from Tallinn in Estonia. He joked about his name being the same as his hometown, and that he was, he was one of the founders of Skype. Well, I'm, I'm sure some of you can imagine some of the thoughts that occurred to me at that point, thoughts like, this has Facebook potential, I'd better talk to him. <laughs> so I reminded him who I was. I, I, I was the Australian philosopher taking a slow boat to Cambridge. And I asked him the obvious question, what, what does he do these days since inventing Skype, as it were? Well, Jan mentioned his day job with a venture capital company, but said that he spent a lot of his time trying to get people to pay more attention to AI risk. I asked him what he meant by this term, AI risk, and he talked about concerns that machine intelligence might far exceed human intelligence at some point, perhaps quite soon, and perhaps very rapidly once machine intelligence becomes self-improving, once it becomes smart enough to do what AI developers do now. And that this development might be very bad news for many species on this planet, and especially for us. Jan said that at least on pessimistic days, he thought he had a higher chance of dying in some AI-related accident than of heart disease or cancer. Now, I'd heard of some of these ideas before, but I hadn't met anyone who took them so seriously, and especially somebody with his feet so firmly on the ground in the software industry. So I was, as you can imagine, I was intrigued by this both by the ideas themselves and by Jan's evident commitment to getting other people to think about them. He wasn't just wasting this cab ride, obviously. This wasn't just polite conversation from his point of view. It was an opportunity to convert somebody else. And as you can see, he did rather a good job. <laughs> well, we had another opportunity to talk later in the conference. And after that, after the conference was over, it occurred to me that I was going to be spending a couple of days in Jan's hometown, Tallinn, just two weeks later. I was giving some lectures in Helsinki, and the best way at that point, the best way to get from Cambridge, uh, to get from Helsinki to Cambridge was to fly from Tallinn, which is a beautiful little medieval town just a, an hour away from Helsinki on the other side of the Gulf of Finland. And I had a free day in Tallinn. So I emailed Jan and suggested that perhaps we could meet to continue this interesting conversation. But by that stage, it had also occurred to me that one of the people I already knew in Cambridge was also worried about near-term risks to humanity arising from human technology. And that person, of course, was Martin Rees, who you've just seen on the video, who was then still master of Trinity College in Cambridge, where I was about to take up a fellowship. I knew Martin through philosophy of cosmology um, circles. We'd met at another conference a few years before. So I was wondering whether, thanks to that cab ride in Copenhagen, I might be in a position to act as a kind of catalyst between these two activists 
and their respective networks and circles. And I thought that the resulting reaction, if I could play that role, might be much more effective than these two distinguished individuals speaking individually, as it were. And it also occurred to me that this would be a very fitting role for the new Bertrand Russell Professor of Philosophy. As most of you will know, Bertrand Russell himself spent the last 20 years of his very long life trying to reduce risks of human extinction from nuclear war. Ooh, I don't seem to have my slides. Oh, yes, here he is. Good. Um, so there's Russell um, at the age of 90 in 1962 on the cover of Newsweek, very much the intellectual grandfather of the, the band the bomb movement of the time. And I'll come back to, to Russell later. Anyway, I discussed these thoughts with Jan over a long lunch in, in Tallinn in September 2011, and set out for Cambridge even more gripped by the thought that fate was offering me a, a remarkable opportunity. She'd already been very kind to me in lining me up with what, from my point of view, was probably the most interesting job in the world, and now she seemed to be offering me the chance to use that job to do something entirely unexpected and totally fascinating and maybe rather important. So when I got to Cambridge, as soon as I ran into Martin, I spoke to him about this Tallinn project, as I was calling it ambiguously at that time. And then, with his encouragement, I, I set out looking for a, a good way to bring Jan to Cambridge. And I found enthusiastic support at an excellent little centre called the Centre for Science and Policy in Cambridge, who invited Jan to come and give a, a, a public lecture in their Distinguished Lecture Series, and that happened early in 2012. And that was the first opportunity for Martin, Jan, and I all to, to meet together. And by spring of that year, we decided to work together to establish what we decided to call the Center for the Study of Existential Risk, or CSER, or, or CESER, as, as we say. So let me say something about the focus of, of, of CESER, of our project. We decided to focus explicitly on catastrophic, potentially species-threatening risks arising as unintended consequences of new human technologies. Now, of course, there are other extinction-level risks to, the, to our species, such as um, asteroid impacts or, um, or megavolcanoes. But these risks are, are low, and they're constant, and they're comparatively well understood. In contrast, the potential technological risks, from, say, from synthetic biology or nanotechnology, as well as from AI itself, might be considerably higher, rapidly changing, and hardly studied at all. So it seemed obvious where we should focus our efforts. Now, we realized that some people would think of some of these concerns as a little bit flaky. But as Martin put it in one of our early conversations, that's precisely why they're so important. A lot of the danger here lies in the possibility that really serious risks are being ignored because they have this flaky image. So from the beginning, we set out to change that image, and we knew that our main weapon in order to do so was scientific reputation. We had to show that serious people took these issues seriously in order to push them towards the mainstream. And we've now been joined by a very remarkable group of academics and entrepreneurs who make up our advisory board and who've all been generous enough to, to lend us their names and reputations in support of what we're trying to do. It's a long list now, but just to mention a few names that will be familiar to almost all of you, I think there's, there's Stephen Hawking, there's, there's Bob May, Lord May of Oxford, uh, this distinguished physicist and ecologist who grew up here in the eastern suburbs, went to Sydney Boys, and was president of the Royal Society immediately before Martin. There's Alison Gopnik, the, the famous Berkeley psychologist and, and author. There's Max Tegmark, the MIT cosmologist, who told me two years ago when he joined us that we could use his name, but he, he was afraid that he didn't have any time to get involved in any way. But who's now, two years later, setting up a similar center of his own at MIT, with which we're now busily collaborating. And most recently of all, just about three or four days ago, uh, there's Peter Piot, who's uh, the Belgian microbiologist, who's now director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, formerly director of the UN AIDS program, 
and who was co-discoverer of the Ebola virus in the 1960, uh, 1970s. Well, what are we doing with all this reputation? Well, we'll, we'll soon be doing some real research of our own. We've just been offered a, a generous donation from the um, Grantham Foundation, which will support our first young postdoc researchers. But at this point, we have a number of achievements. We've got a significant and growing advisory role, both to government agencies and in the private sector, and both in Britain and elsewhere. We have a growing role as a sponsor and co-organizer of various meetings and workshops, and a growing network of international research links. But most important of all, I think, I think we've already had an impact on the conversation, doing some of that work I mentioned a moment ago of pushing the issue of extreme technological risk onto the agenda for discussion around the world, helping it to become as it needs to be a mainstream topic rather than a fringe topic. But what topic is it exactly? One thing that's come into focus over the past two years or so as we've worked to get Caesar off the ground is a way of defining the space of tasks in which it will operate. I like to put it like this. Insofar as we can extrapolate from our own case, it seems likely that any advanced tool-using tool species in the universe is going to face a new kind of challenge when its technology reaches a certain level. Roughly, the task of ensuring that it doesn't wipe itself out with its own technological success. The danger stems from the fact that powerful technologies will put the capacity to do catastrophic damage in dangerously few hands, or, or dangerously few claws or, or tentacles or whatever the relevant appendages happen to be in the case in question. Or they might put it in the hands of other intelligences altogether, as in the case of artificial intelligence. But that means that there's a generic question that any such species seems, like, seems likely to face at pretty much the point where we are now. What new techniques and scientific tools does it need to develop to manage and, as far as possible, to mitigate this new class of risks, these self-imposed risks? What are the necessary ingredients, theoretical and practical, of a science of existential risk? I see this as the most concise summary of Caesar's concerns. Caesar's role is to lead and foster the development of this new and necessary science. We don't know yet quite how urgent the task is in our own species case, but there are enough grounds for concern that it seems prudent to begin to develop the techniques and expertise to find out. And that's what we aim to do. And that brings me back to, to Bertrand Russell. As I mentioned earlier, Russell spent much of his time and energy in the last 20 years of his life in the campaign against the spread and dangers of nuclear weapons. Here he is uh, at a Hiroshima Day demonstration in London in 1961, for example, with his, his wife Edith at the head of the demonstration there. And here he is at a sit-in protest in Whitehall in February 1961, sitting on the ground at the age of 89. And Februarys in the UK were even colder in those days than they are now. Later that year, at the age of 89, he was arrested at another sit-in and spent a week in Brixton prison for, after refusing to sign a good behavior bond, saying that he wouldn't do it again. <laughs> Brixton was the, actually the same prison he'd been imprisoned in during the First World War for, for pacifist activities. He was somebody who certainly knew how to use a dangerous idea. Here he is. This is a, a contemporary comment on the 1961 imprisonment. I think most of you won't be able to read it, so I'll read it for you. The, the caption at the bottom says, all right, for the last time, Who's the brains behind this? <laughs> a few years before that, this is 1961, a few years before that, Christmas 1954, Russell delivered a famous BBC lectures, lecture on the dangers of the H-bomb. He later wrote out a copy of that lecture by hand to be deposited in the library at Trinity College in Cambridge. Here's, here's the first page of that letter of that lecture. When I first joined Trinity, this page was on display. 
in the library next to a letter by the Trinity physicist Otto Frisch describing the first uh, atomic bomb test in 1945 that he was one of the eyewitnesses to. I looked at Russell's lecture again recently and realized that if we take a little bit of liberty with Russell's meaning, we can read him as anticipating the need that Caesar is trying to meet. So I want to finish by reading you this, this first page of Russell's lecture. Russell says, I'm speaking on this occasion not as a Briton, not as a European, not as a member of a Western democracy, but as a human being, a member of the species man whose continued existence is in doubt. The world is full of conflicts, Jews and Arabs, Indians and Pakistanis, white men and Negroes in Africa, and overshadowing all minor conflicts, the titanic struggle between communism and anti-communism. Almost everybody who's politically conscious has strong feelings about one or more of these issues. But I want you, if you can, to set aside such feelings for the moment and consider yourself only as a member of a biologically, biological species which has had a remarkable history and whose disappearance none of us can desire. I shall try to say no single word which would appeal to one group rather than to another. All equally are in peril, and if the peril is understood, there is a hope that they may collectively avert it. And then in the last line on this page, Russell says, we have to learn to think in a new way. Now, what Russell had in mind here was a new way of thinking about the way we conduct international relations to reduce the threat of nuclear war. At Caesar, we have something different in mind, of course. We want a new way of thinking about the potential risks of our own technological success. But the goal is the same in both cases, to save ourselves from the consequences of our own technological ingenuity. Caesar is built on the conviction that our best hope of surviving our own technological success lies in turning our scientific talents specifically to the task, in designing the techniques we apply to it like a piece of intellectual technology for the job they need to do. So that's our project at Caesar. Here's our webpage. Um, you can find us at CSER.org. Please go there and look us up. And thank you. Thank you, Hugh. And to Jan. As we heard, Jan Tallinn is uh, one of the uh, founding engineers, the founding engineer of Skype, uh, also of Kazar and a co-founder of MetaMed, which is a personalised medical research company. I'm not sure whether he felt Martin's Skype technique was best practice. We'll have to find that out afterwards. But please join me in welcoming Jan Tallinn. Good afternoon. Uh, Pulp Fiction is one of my favorite movies. And I noticed a nice Pulp Fiction-like quality to our presentations here because uh, uh, Martin started uh, his presentation 10 years ago. Uh, Hugh started uh, uh, six years, uh, three years ago. And I would start uh, uh, six years ago. Uh, so you can kind of stitch uh, together the chronology in your heads later. Uh, so yeah. Indeed, about six or so years ago, uh, after I had sold my shares in Skype and I was uh, looking for new things to do, I stumbled upon the writings of a young man in California. And he was making this uh, uh, crazy sounding argument that the creation of human level AI uh, would be the biggest event in human history and the default outcome would not be good for us. The problem was that I couldn't find um, any flaws in his argument, and being a programmer, I trust logic over intuition. So I shot him an email and proposed a meeting. And we ended up talking uh, for about four hours straight. His name is Eliezer Rutkowski, and he's the co-founder of what's now known as AMIRI, a Machine Intelligence Research Institute in Berkeley. Uh, and it turns out he was elaborating a 50-year-old argument, uh, one first started by I.J. Good who was a British mathematician, a statistician, and a colleague of Alan Turing. Back in 1965, uh, I.J. Good observed that 
if humans ended up inventing a machine that was intellectually superior to them, it would be our last invention, because all further inventions could be done by that machine. He called the situation where machines invent machines that go on inventing even better machines an intelligence explosion, and predicted that human intelligence would be left far behind. I.J. Good also went on to say that these emerging ultra-intelligent machines uh, might or might not be docile enough to do our bidding. The key thing to pay attention to here is that AI is a kind of meta-technology, a technology that in the future will be capable of developing its own technology. So whatever concerns we have about powerful technologies like nuclear weapons, synthetic biology, nanotechnology, we need to make sure that AI does not simply ignore those concerns. The first thing I did after meeting uh, Eliezer was to donate his organization uh, $4,000, having come, come away convinced that there was no time to lose, because the problems humanity is facing from AI and other powerful technologies are real, complex, and urgent. The problems are real because there are highly motivated teams around the world pushing the envelope of potentially dangerous science and technology. The problems are complex because they entail a risk of global runaway processes, that is, processes like global warming, only acting on much shorter timescales. In order to mitigate them, we need to line up a lot of ducks in a row. And as attested by global warming, that's not something that we are very good at yet. Finally, the problems are urgent because it's not clear how much time we have left to address them. When it comes to AI timelines, there is no consensus among experts. Now, to give you an analogy, imagine boarding a plane and being told uh, that one bunch of officials believe there's a bomb on board, while another bunch of uh, officials disagree. Would you be complacent about it, or would you rather get off? <laughs> it gets worse, though. Complacency advocates rarely have arguments that hold up, hold up on, upon closer inspection. Indeed, such arguments often indicate that the person is simply not familiar with the current thinking. For example, some people insist that intelligence and benevolence are correlated, so AI will be automatically good for us. Yet we don't see a lot of evidence for that correlation being true even among humans, not to mention other species. Clearly, gorillas, while being more intelligent than dogs, care less about humans than dogs, not more. Another argument, especially from non-technical people, is that AIs won't be conscious, so there's nothing to worry about. Unfortunately, being unconscious doesn't seem to hinder the capabilities of machines. A chess computer can beat all humans in its sleep, so to speak. Or take the argument that machines are just tools that don't have goals or volition of their own. In fact, just a few months ago, I was arguing about this very topic with a professor at MIT. Well, Imagine a simple thermostat. Does it really matter if you think it doesn't have goals or volition? It still acts as if, if it had one. And it can get very uncomfortable sharing a room with a, with a thermostat that you don't control. You see, what ultimately matters is machine's ability to model the world and choose its actions based on predictions that it makes using that model. If it can predict the future better than you can, you lose, just like you lose to a chess computer. <coughs> Finally, a popular opinion among AI researchers is that building human-level AI is so hard, perhaps even impossible. So thinking about its implications is just a waste of time. Apparently, there's a historical analog to this. In 1939, most physicists, including famous ones like Einstein and Fermi, thought that nuclear reactions were impossible yet the first man-made nuclear reaction was just three years away. Not to mention that we might end up building the first human-level AI without actually fully understanding it first, just as evolution managed to build us. So being complacent about the outlook is the last thing that we can afford to do. Luckily, there are several positive trends that make me optimistic. First of all, even though the technology risk arguments are not new, I.J. Good made his prediction in 1965 Bill Joy wrote his famous article uh, called Why the Future Doesn't Need Us in 2000, and Bernard Russell made his arguments somewhere in between. Up until recently, they were mostly dismissed as science fiction. Now, that seems to be changing now, and I'm happy to have had, 
a hand in this. And I sometimes joke that even though the Cambridge Centers for the Study of Existential Risk hasn't accomplished any research yet, it has already made a valuable contribution to the world. Because the Institute includes a number, includes a number of people who are very hard to dismiss, it provides a canonical answer to the question, existential risks, says who? Also, the tone of the press is changing. The tone of the press is changing. A typical headline just two years ago was, Terminator Center to open at Cambridge University. Whereas a recent Bloomberg editorial was entitled, Intelligent Machines Scare Smart People. <laughs> What's more, the number of people working on these issues has been steadily increasing, as have their budgets. My own initial $4,000 donation to Miri has grown to over $700,000 to nine organizations this year. Last, and perhaps most importantly, the tech industry has started paying attention. There's a growing number of reasonable AI developers out there who are aware of the problems and are looking to take them into account in their work. For instance, earlier this year, Google bought an AI company that I was an investor in and agreed to establish an ethics and safety board to oversee further developments. Also, the Cambridge Centre now boasts two very prominent industry insiders. Stuart Russell, uh, who is the co-author of the leading contemporary AI textbook, and Elon Musk, who doesn't need introduction. However, uh, there's no reason to be content just yet. Still, as few as 20 people uh, work full-time on these topics, and the amount of money humanity spends on its own survival even pales in comparison to what it spends on lipstick research. <laughs> we also need to spread the culture of caution among leading researchers and technologists. After all, taking risks goes from heroic to irresponsible as the power of technology increases. Finally, research. Oh boy, we need a mountain of new research before we can feel safe. We need to improve our ability to analyze and constrain computer programs. We need to develop better decision theory for, for autonomous systems. And we need to figure out universal human values and, importantly, describe them in computer code. We need policy research to steer science better and safe, more safely. And some nasty philosophical paradoxes need to be solved. <coughs> Luckily, all of this research is really fascinating and thus already attracting very capable minds. So in conclusion, I would like to, I would like to leave you with an image. If you Google the unlikely, unlikely phrase, NASA rocket frog. You should find a famous photo from about a year ago. It depicts a NASA rocket launch with a black silhouette of a flying frog visible against the glowing fumes. When I first saw the photo, it struck me as a perfect visual metaphor for what it means to share a planet with superintelligence. From the perspective of the frog, that event must have been sudden, strange, brief and most likely lethal. To avoid the fate of that frog, humanity needs to get this act together now. And I'm increasingly confident that we can do it. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm terrified. Jan, just... Just to kick us off, well, uh, this is the thing. You're a technologist, you're a futurist. Mm -hmm. You, I know, even describe yourself as an optimist. Uh, yep. So much of your work relies on those kind of risks you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, what of it? Let's say you're right. Are you suggesting that we should stop taking technological risks, stop making those advancements, that it's too dangerous? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, it's uh, still important to uh, sort of... Uh, keep continuing the technology, and, and it's, uh, I don't think it's like, easy uh, to stop the technological progress anyway. Uh, so it, we shouldn't kind of uh, contemplate measures that uh, are draconic, are draconic or, or otherwise just uh, futile. Uh, but it's important to uh, just keep in mind that uh, uh, of the precautionary principle or, or, or just be aware of, of, of all the side effects of your scientific research or, or uh, technological uh, project. Uh, for example, when there was a couple of years ago or, or so, there was this uh, controversy about um, uh, making the bird flu more contagious. And uh, it's not, 
the, the effect of, of publishing that paper is not just like uh, advancing your academic career. It has, can have very serious side effects, and you should take those into account when you do that. Mm. Hugh, I noticed that you described Jan and Martin both as activists when you were talking about them. Can you expand upon that a bit for me? How do you see the work of Caesar as activist work? Well, I, 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 I was using that term as I thought of them when I met them. And as you, you can see from Martin, I mean, he, was, he was writing about these things 10 years ago um, and has done a lot in that period to, to raise awareness. Um, and as I said, Jan was, was, was being an activist even in that taxi in Copenhagen <laughs> in, in trying to convert me. Um, so I think, I think the term is, is, is fair, even if they weren't sitting in the streets in the way that Bertrand Russell was in 1961. Um, Caesar, well, I suppose there's a sense in which uh, we're an activist organization, but we're very much, as I said, we're very much focused on scientific reputation. We want to, um, I mean, the message we want to project is that this is, a, this is a scientific and a technological problem, and if we put our minds to it, it's probably a problem we can solve. The big thing is to, to, to recognise that there is an issue there and, and we shouldn't be ignoring it. And, and so that roll call of names is about burnishing your credentials to a certain extent. Uh, so uh, that yes, yes. I mean, it's about, it, it, it's about dealing with the response of people who say, as, as, as Jan put it, existential risk. Who takes that seriously? And, you know, Jan mentioned climate change, for example. In this country, we are, I think it's fair to say, at a point in time where... Uh, the capacity of policymakers to listen to experts is possibly at what I hope will be an all-time low. I can't imagine it going any lower. Um, and so if you're a concerned scientist or uh, technologist or expert in a field, affecting change with your work has to be kind of... Absolutely, yes no, I, I agree completely. And, and so the, the, the sort of model we have for, for the work of CESAR uh, it's, I like to think of it as a three-dimensional model. So it has what I think of as the horizontal connections into all sorts of disciplines like computer science and philosophy and all sorts of uh, psychology and m many others. But it also has practical connections in two directions. I think of them as running down into the technologies on which the whole thing is founded. Uh, and so it links with, with um, the, the, the people developing these technologies. That's crucial. You've got to have a safe, try to develop a safety culture. But also the the sort of upward links to, to, to policymakers. And that's something that's got to be done properly. And as you say, the, the, the dismal history of, of, of um, discussions about climate change gives us a good model for something that we, you know, we've got to do better than that. And, and, and so I see part of our research is focusing on that question as to, to how we can improve those channels between science and policy. Yeah, I, I even I made a couple of AI investments just so I could uh, hang around in the kitchen and talk about this issue. And it seems to work, actually. It yeah. seems to work. Uh, shareholder meetings where you stand up and say, be careful, everyone, <laughs> which always goes well in a shareholder meeting. I should be clear, I've come to praise Caesar, not to bury it, yeah. but, uh, but I'm curious about, and also I really wanted to use that line, um, but I am curious about the extent to which even the name Centre for the Study of Existential Risk lays you bare to those people who don't take you seriously, who, who go, well, it, it's too big to even contemplate existential risk, so I'm going to dismiss it out of hand. Yeah, no, I mean, certainly one of, one of the features of human psychology that we need to deal with in this case, as in other cases, is that we, we find it hard to think very far ahead. We find it hard to think about things that are difficult. And, and one of the things we need to do is to kind of engineer ways of getting ourselves around those inbuilt psychological barriers. On the other hand, one of the people who was involved in our early discussions is uh, an Oxford philosopher called Nick Bostrom, who's the director of a wonderful centre for, called the Future of Humanity Institute in the James Martin School in Oxford, where they do do work of this kind and have been doing it for several years. Very good work. I said to Nick in, in one of those early discussions, Nick, if, if you were setting up FHI again, is there anything you'd do differently? And he said, well, one thing I'd do differently is to choose a different name. If you're called the Future of Humanity Institute, people want you to work, work on anything to do with Future of Humanity, whereas what we really want to focus on is, is, is the, the urgent stuff, the extreme risk. And so that's why we decided to, to, to take the, um, the, the opposite strategy and, and, and make our, our name, in one sense, as pessimistic as possible. Although, of course, the, the issues we're looking 
at or not. I mean, they, they, it's not like there's a sudden boundary where we stop talking about things which would wipe us all out. They're continuous with a, a spectrum of fr from the merely bad to the, to the truly awful to, to the absolutely existential. I love the idea that there's a spectrum like a whiteboard in the yeah. office where you go, let's move <laughs> yeah. that one up. That seems suddenly a little more pressing. Well, that's one of the things we want to do, we actually, do. with some of our collaborators, is, is to, in effect, to build an online model where, where, we, where we have a better sense of what these risks are, what the factors that go into assessing them, so that every, everyone can see the big picture. And then, presumably, an online campaign for people to vote things up <laughs> and down. <laughs> it's, if there's enough predictive power in crowdsourcing, then sure. Yeah, because I mean, one, one of the issues is, is that famously experts can be the worst possible people to make decisions. And, and so one of the things we want to, you need to do here, and this is of course not just true of the extreme risks, but many other areas as well, is to try and improve decision making. Uh, and, and, and some of the models for doing that are in effect something like crowdsourcing models, like setting up prediction markets. Yeah. And, I mean, the, that list of experts that you talked about, presumably uh, a lot of the people with an association with Caesar have a particular barrow to push. And by definition, it's a barrow that they're very worried about and take very seriously. Do you have internal fights? I mean, are you, a, as a centre, is there conflict about where your priorities should go and your public-facing priorities? So, so the, yeah, like, you, can, you can talk more about the centre itself, but... Uh, like in general, there is uh, even people who acknowledge the existential risk uh, risks. There are uh, like sort of a few schools of thought who have like differently different, uh, uh, like starkly different priorities. Like one one strong uh, division line uh, when among people who are concerned about AI risk is so-called uh, uh, soft takeoff scenarios or hard takeoff scenarios. So so when I when I uh, recited the uh, argument that I.J. Good made about machines making machines making machines. The question is like how how quickly that can happen, and if it if it can happen like in a, in the speed of just recompilation of code, which is minutes, then then that's, that's just a much more uh, dramatic scenario when it when it still requires that whole economy uh, to get behind this this uh, uh, intelligence explosion and and might might take might take decades in which, during which we can still control the uh, process and and steer steer its course. So that's one, one big kind of uh, source of arguments between, between people who are actually going on board with existential risk. And you asked about internal conflicts. Yeah. Well, at the, at the stage we're at at the moment, where, where we haven't yet started employing this sort of team of young researchers, uh, we haven't had many opportunities for those sorts of conflicts. Once we do get going, of course they'll come up, as they do in, in any kind of academic enterprise or presumably in technology development teams too. People will disagree about things and there'll be things that need to get sorted out. But that's, I, but that's a normal part of the process. Because I don't know whether I'm more scared of bird flu or AI now. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, that's partly a, a joke response, but it, it, it's also... Well, of course, one of, the, one of the questions we want to address is, uh, I mean, as, as, as Martin likes to say, we, we, we need to sort out what's sci-fi from what we need to take, worry about seriously. And that's some of the initial work that needs to be done. Um, but one of the things we're very keen to, to stress is that it would be silly to set up one centre for looking at AI risk and another centre for looking at synthetic biology and another for nanotechnology. There's this there's this kind of package problem, which is the one I tried to describe, a, a, a result of the fact that we've got to roughly this technological level, where we're starting to produce technologies which are powerful enough to threaten us in these ways. There are differences, but there are a lot of similarities too, and I think it's important to think about the thing as a package and, and, yeah. and think about the techniques we need, the intellectual and the practical techniques for mitigating well, these One way of risks. putting it is that uh, we might or might not, not get to the human level AI, but if it turns out we will never make a, a human-level AI, the most likely reason why, why we didn't do that was that some, some other catastrophe happened before. <laughs> oh, that's heartening. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really lifted my mood knowing. <laughs> uh, there is a chance for you to ask questions of uh, both these gentlemen. The house lights, I think, are going to come up. And I'll do that gesture like I'm... Uh, they may be sentient and they may have decided they're not willing to, <laughs> uh, which I don't ever want to think about. No, here we go, there's a bit of light. I am going to have to ask you to make your way to one of the microphones at either side of the room. I'm sure you're all conversant in the Festival of Dangerous Ideas and know what you're doing. And um, we'll take your question from this side first. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Milena and I have a question actually for Jan as a software developer. Because the intelligent behaviour is so unpredictable, 
At this point, is there any, do we know of any practical ways to mitigate this risk? I mean, what do we do? Hard code Asimov's laws into every intelligent toaster? Or, I mean, you talked about expressing human values in, in a code. Hmm? So is there anything at this point that we know that we could do to mitigate this risk, short of preventing AI altogether? Yeah, so uh, there, right now there aren't that many practical things yet, uh, but that's precisely the goal of, uh, of, of the Cambridge Centre and, and other centres uh, uh, around the world who are, who are engaging in this kind of work, to actually figure out uh, uh, ways how to like, either somehow constrain the computer code, like sandbox it in, in some kind of... Uh, um, in, a, in some controllable manner, so if you, even if you don't know what processes there are inside, uh, even if the processes inside the box are uh, unpredictable, it, you still can be fairly safe, uh, well, at least initially, uh, uh, as long as it doesn't figure out that it's in a box. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, and also, like, it, it's, uh, it's not completely true that intelligent uh, uh, behaviors are unpredictable. There are like, uh, a friend of mine who, whose name is Steve Omhundra. He has uh, uh, written a paper called uh, AI Drives. The idea is that whatever uh, goals an AI has, or, or intelligent agent has, there are a bunch of sub-goals that it, it will predictably uh, strive for. So, so uh, things like resource. It, it basically wants... Uh, uh, energy, it wants atoms, it wants uh, space, th th things that it needs to build uh, towards its goals. It wants self-improvement, uh, things like that. So, so you, there are still a bunch of uh, analysis that, that we can do, uh, even, even where we are. Uh, but uh, are, right now, it's just uh, the whole movement is kind of financially constrained, and we're working on that. And so. I'm just curious, the question I did mention Asimov's rules, yeah. which must be, what, 50 years old now? Just so, ballpark. Have they been updated? Are they still as relevant as they were? Like that seems as relevant as they were in novels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the most important thing about science fiction is that these are things that never happened. So you can't use things that happened in science fiction as evidence no. for, for predicting the future. You say that, but when Skynet comes and gets us all, then we'll say. So yeah, I, I mean, the, I, in my talk I mentioned uh, sort of arguments that come up from, from people and the theme of laws. Indeed, I even had in my draft, and then I throw them out, you know, to keep it concise. Uh, I mean, the answer to Asimov's law, people who uh, bring up Asimov's laws, is that uh, well, look, they didn't even work in novels, right? <laughs> why, why would they work in in, in uh, real world? And, uh, and more, like, I can, even, even I, with my intelligence, uh, human-level intelligence, admittedly, uh, can uh, think, think of ways how to uh, break the Asimov laws. Like, uh, well, they constrain me, but they don't, they don't tell anything about when I create new robots. Like, uh, like, uh, or like, when I create something that, is, uh, that can uh, uh, change the world, can control the world, but it's not, doesn't fall under the definition of a robot, so it's, it's free of those. Or like, uh, I just sedate all humans and, and uh, make sure that they, they'll not harm anyone from now on, <laughs> uh, and vice versa. So, yeah, as you must just don't work if you start thinking about them. Frightened. Again, we're going to go over here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my question's about the human potential aspect of this kind of a discussion. I guess the emotive human aspect for A1. And you mentioned uh, chess players beating humans, and I, I may be wrong here, but Gary Kasparov, I know he lost to Deep Blue, but I think he did win a game or two. And, and the explanation I remembered was he can only think 30 moves ahead in a chess game, Deep Blue, thousands. <laughs> but from what I remember, they spoke about this sort of elusive human emotive quality that enabled him to win in spite of numbers that just made it look absolutely impossible. So firstly, on the premise that I've recalled that correctly, what um, what... What um, role does the emotive sort of human aspect play in the fact that we have these aspects we don't entirely know about ourselves that machines may be a long way from being able to replicate? Yeah, well, first of all, Gary Gasparov is a good friend and, and he's... Uh, oh, talked that's about so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's I'm the, my name that is the best <laughs> name drop I've ever had. <laughs> so my good friend Gary Kasparov and I were out for lunch. <laughs> and an interesting thing is that, that he is still pissed about this. <laughs> He said, he said that, he said that, uh, that by uh, dismantling the Deep Blue, uh, IBM destroyed uh, only impartial uh, witness to that. 
<laughs> that, that match. Uh, but even, even he uh, doesn't uh, like, uh, acknowledge that uh, even he probably, while he could have beaten uh, Deep Blue, he, he can't beat the, the, the com chess computers, chess programs today. Uh, and the point that you brought up, so as, as sometimes I say that, I just pull out my mobile phone is that like, this can beat every human on the planet, which it can. Uh, and, um, uh, but yeah, it, clearly there are um, things that uh, humans can do much better than, uh, than uh, machines these days. Uh, but it's, I think, the important part there is these days, because uh, uh, as the Ray Kurzweil, who is uh, like a famous uh, uh, futurist, uh, he, he has this saying that uh, uh, at any time people think that uh, there are uh, things the machines clearly can do, can't do, and and uh, uh, and as the time progresses, they just the, the set of things the machines can can't do just contracts, and then they say that oh, oh yeah, these, these these were easy, but but this next thing they can't do. So. <laughs> you, as a philosopher, just out of curiosity, how does? this sit with you, this well, question? I, I just wanted to pick up on, on the issue of emotions yeah. the, in, in the, um, the, that question. I mean, some, sometimes people think that, they think, well, no, machines couldn't be like us because machines can't have emotions. And I, I think that that's an unhelpful way to think for at least two reasons. One is, as, as Jan pointed out, the example of the thermostat. Something can have goals in the sense that it, 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 it will do things, it will act in a goal-directed way, even though clearly it doesn't have emotions. So th thinking that we only have to worry about machines that would have emotions uh, would, would be a, a bad mistake. But secondly, if we are interested in machines which in some sense, are, well, people use the term friendly AI, uh, machines which, whose goals are such that they will be well disposed towards us, then it's probably going to be important that we understand a lot about our own emotions and the way in which they constrain our value systems and so on, so that we can build some of that kind of psychology into the machines in order to make them safe. And so I, I, it's, it's probably a good guess that unless we can crack that problem of, in some sense, giving machines something like emotions, there's no way of solving this problem of making AI friendly. As, as I say that, uh, philosophers have had like thousands of years to come up with interesting thoughts and, and write interesting uh, uh, books, but now we need answers and we need them yeah. now and then we need them in computer code. He's throwing down the gauntlet. He's saying, yeah. <laughs> right. Enough right. of your fancy yeah. words, you. Yeah, that's right. Answers. Give me code. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for, for, fortunately, I'm now old enough so I can say, no, I, I can't take on anything new, but I can help define the smart young people who, who yep. can do it. My favourite science fiction film of recent years, I think, is Spike Jonze's Her, which, in which there's an operating system. Did you say that? Yeah, I saw that. You didn't like it? <laughs> oh. I mean, it was good as a movie, but it's... Uh... <laughs> I mean, what a, a put that. A fr friend of, friend of mine, friend of mine uh, had this uh, quip about her, is that, well, this movie is about as realistic as a movie about the future where you can buy uh, nuclear weapons uh, for one dollar in, in a drugstore. And then a couple of teenagers went, go and, and buy them a bunch of nuclear weapons, go to the forest and make an interesting cave with that, and then explore that cave, and then at some point nuclear weapons disappear from the planet. So <laughs> the point is that... Uh, uh, like once you have human-level AI, you're not, not going to have a world like that. It, it, because like jobs, how come this uh, main character can, can have a job while, while there are actually machines that can do that much better? It's just a movie and it's very romantic. I like it. <laughs> no, I like it as an as a art. Wow. <laughs> Ouch. Uh. Yes, if if uh, there is a potential risk from AI, where would you think that the, the most dangerous programs are occurring right now? And how likely is it that, uh, in our own interest, we wouldn't be allowed to find out about them till it's too late? <laughs> oh, extra paranoid. Good. <laughs> Look, no, no, no. I, Actually, I, I, I wanted to ask about volcanoes and, uh, and asteroids, but I'll just Google that later. <laughs> well, I mean, AI is... Uh, mm, it, it's... Uh, uh, there are, like, multiple... Um, okay. There's still so many ways to, to, to answer that, but let, let, me, let me just find someone. So one, one thing is that uh, AI follows uh, sort of a cyclical 
uh, cyclical uh, timeline uh, called AI winters and AI summers. Uh, and uh, what happens usually is that uh, somebody discovers a new technique and, uh, and this, this generates a lot of enthusiasm among uh, uh, researchers and uh, uh, potential uh, entrepreneurs and funders. And the funders don't necessarily understand what's going on. So, so they, uh, at, at that point, they, they create a lot of uh, demand uh, and fake supply, uh, meaning that uh, at some point they get the, the lose their money, basically. And then, then the AI goes out of style, and then, then they need to invent a new name for it, like machine learning. And then, then this comes back as, as machine learning, and, and the new technique is discovered. Right now, deep learning is the, is the, is the, like the big fashionable thing. And this gets, this gets uh, again, like a lot of in investor interest. And uh, uh, so right now, what's happening is that everybody who can... Like the prog AI progress is driven by, by what ca who can uh, kind of actually put the latest uh, uh, techniques into practice. So Google, indeed, they, they, they use uh, deep learning, Microsoft, Facebook. So yeah, I think the US tech companies are, are right now actually pushing the, pushing the envelope because, because they have a practical way to take the latest discoveries and, and put them to, uh, to work uh, for, the, for the companies. But, but again, like how long that will take us, I don't know. Will, and and, and if, if it will not take us to the sort of uh, some intelligence explosion, which I hope it won't, uh, is, and it's unlikely, I think. Uh, then we will we'll see another AI winter, and this thing, this thing will die down for a, for a while again, and then like new centers might, like military might, I think that would be bad, uh, would, would come up uh, uh, who can exploit the newest, latest so, techniques. So you're basically following rather than leading the process? Sorry? You think the military would be following rather than leading the process? Uh, I mean, I have very poor understanding of, of military, uh, so so I don't That's actually. The the question, then. I, don't, I don't actually know, uh, but uh, somebody made a good point that uh, uh, if you have a cryptography company, you would have very hard time uh, hiring cryptographers because they have been hired by uh, by government agencies. However, if you're an AI company, I mean, you have tr troubles, but not like, like cryptogra cryptography, which seems to be an evidence that, uh, that there isn't like a lot of, that, that the cutting-edge research still is commercial these days. Is that cause for worry in and of itself? Kind of market forces and uh, commercial kind of imperatives? I, I think it's definitely better than, than, than having, having this happen in military under like... Uh, oh, yeah, no, that wasn't the binary I was going for necessarily. Uh, but, you know, one of, the, one of the challenges of research uh, like this is if people are doing it for money and trying to work out mm -hmm. how to make money, they're probably less inclined to care about uh, oh, yeah. ethical implications or existential implications. Oh, I, 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 I think that's true, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important to, to engage with the development communities, um, because the, the people actually doing the intellectual work are not the same people as the people sitting in the boards. And, and, Another AI researcher has kind of pointed out that there is this reversed U-curve uh, between uh, how smart the AI researchers are, are and how dangerous they are, because if they are, if they are uh, not that smart, like, they're not going to do anything. But if, if they get smarter, they get more dangerous. And once they get smart enough, the danger goes down because they start to realize their, their side effects of, from their work. So you don't want to be halfway smart. I, I, exactly. I, I think that's, that's true, maybe. <laughs> Over here. Yes, um, I'd like to thank you for alerting me to that fallacy of connecting um, high intelligence with um, benevolence. Um, now, also, I would like to um, say that my knowledge of the internet and how it works is very, very limited. But I've um, come across this idea recently that it is a new idea that the internet could, at some point, possibly develop consciousness, some form of consciousness. It could, yeah, like evolution, develop into even a higher consciousness. And then um, I was wondering if you think that the internet could develop consciousness and would it also necessarily develop intelligence? and thereby morality? And if not, can we somehow integrate into the internet human values and morality? Yeah, do you want uh, well, <laughs> that was like 10 questions, I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> I, I mean, there's, there's a lot I don't know about the internet too, but I would, and, and obviously I know far, far less about AI and software and so on than Jan does, 
but I would have thought it was extremely unlikely that the internet was going to be the source of the, the thing that we're, we're worried about here. It's far more likely to be some, a, a machine developed for some specific purpose. Usually when people like, think that the internet can do all, all these things is that, that they kind of do a simple pattern match that, uh, that the internet has a certain set of properties that, that human minds have, which is a lot of moving parts, like sort of uh, metaphorically meaning. And, uh, and a lot of information processing going on. However, I think with a uh, lot of uh, components that do information processing is that there are so many ways to make a uh, configuration of them. I think uh, the oceans of the world are even, even more powerful information processing uh, uh, entities than Internet is, by far more, more, more powerful. So like, like if, if you would go all the way, then, then, you, would, then you should end up uh, in, uh, in uh, saying that uh, yeah, why, why doesn't the ocean have consciousness and things like that? But I, it's like, I don't, I don't think it has. So, so uh, I think the same, same argument kind of... Uh, I mean, it, I never say no in the sense that uh, it can't happen, but it's, it's, it seems unlikely because it, like the design of intelligent agents seems a hard thing to do. And it, whenever there's a hard, hard goal, it, you're much more likely to uh, find reach it by deliberate effort as, as a, like a side effect of something. I think uh, on a question that conjures up the idea of a sentient YouTube's comments uh, page, we might have to finish because there's nothing more frightening or more dangerous ahead of us. We are out of time, uh, but I'd ask you to join me in thanking uh, our two representatives from CESA, Jan Tallinn and Dupas. <laughs>